Ahoy, and welcome in to another mind-expanding episode of Not Allowed to Die, your podcast about mental health, where I, Dan Makler, social worker and life enthusiast, answer your questions about mental health. Alongside me, as always, is Mariska, a three-toothed Patterdale Terrier, and she is not licking her paws right now, and you know what that means. When Mariska's not licking her paws, it means you guys have been doing a great job of rating, reviewing, following the podcast, and of course, giving us five stars. And if you want to give a comment, that just makes Mariska extra happy. Today, when I'm recording, it's the 15th of the month, and that means it's heartworm medication day. And she always likes that because you get a little extra treat with your heartworm medication. So Mariska's also super excited because, you know, she loves it when we have guests. And, oh, she did want me to remind, I always have to remember that we are bringing this podcast to you also in part to bring attention to Pause for Patrick. We just finished up May when I'm recording this. And so May was Mental Health Awareness Month. And so people had their yard signs up and putting green ribbons around trees and whatnot. But Every day of the year is a good day for contacting Pause for Patrick if you know a young person with emotional health needs that could benefit from an emotional support animal. But as I was saying, Mariska's extra excited when we have a guest. And today is a guest that very, very um, excited to have on because she's a go-to person in my field when any of the school social workers that I work with, if we have you know, a question or a thought about eating disorders, we know who we need to call. Audrey Grunst is a licensed clinical social worker. CEO and founder of Simply Be in Chicagoland area. Audrey oversees a large outpatient practice and recently opened an intensive outpatient and partial hospitalization program. She's been in the mental health field for 16 years and published a book in 2021 called Five Ways to Grow a Resilient Mind, available on Amazon. And you know that this podcast is really about me being selfish and interviewing the people that I want to learn from. And Audrey is also pioneering of the growth and resiliency model. So Audrey, we're so excited to have you on today and to learn a little bit more about you and how you developed this model. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey into the mental health world and how what you what made you decide that there were the modalities, the CBT, the DBT, things like that were not enough that you wanted to make a different approach of your own? Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to enter the field when I was 20. So you can kind of do the math and figure out my age. I started in partial hospital at Lurie's Children's Hospital and inpatient as well. And right then I discovered the value of the social work model and how social workers are very about a system. And they're about seeing a person within a system and parts, not just the brain and the psychology. So I immediately looked into an MSW program and I was mentored by a sociologist, Dr. Marcel Fredericks, who is a sociologist, and he created the Society Cultural Personality Model, SCP. And in his class, all of the case studies and evaluations had to be within his model. And I really liked that. And then through my master's program, I had an internship under Mary Jo Barrett at the Center for Contextual Change. And she has a model called the Collaborative Stage Model, also a meta model to help plug in theory. And so I have been trained for a very long time to think in terms of systems and how to put a theory into a system. So I think it just made a lot of sense for me over the last decade while teaching a lot and presenting a lot to teach it in a model form. So the growth and resiliency model has been published since 2021, but it's been on slide decks for probably the last eight to 10 years. And we just didn't quite see it. We didn't have the visual aid that we have now. So it has been very organic and natural for me to think in systems and to publish the model and to publish it with a very practical approach that is user-friendly for therapists or for actual clients to be using with their therapist is really exciting for me. And 
I'm excited to kind of just show how my brain works as a clinician and as a business owner and hopefully inspire other people to think about psychology and therapy in a systems approach because I think there's a lot of benefits to it that we don't necessarily understand until we use it and then we appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, I think in grad school, I think the vast majority of people who are decent therapists, they're kind of people who naturally others came to for help and support and whatnot. And then when they went through grad school and they learned about the different modalities, they felt like this fits a little bit with the way my brain works and the way I approach problems. When I think of the Center for Contextual Change and whatnot, and I think about that collaborative stage process, I tend to think a lot about trauma work. Um, and so is there this growth and resiliency model, when I hear the terms, it makes me think of being able to sit with your discomfort and being able to not just feel the need to avoid it or push away from it. So when you're thinking of how might this be a different approach than what people who are using cognitive behavioral models or dialectic behavioral model, like how might this be a different feeling when you're sitting in a therapist's office or a, as the clinician yourself, how might you be approaching things a little bit differently? Yeah, that's a great question. And a conversation that I have many times a week with new clinicians and interns, because what's happening in the mental health field is that newer clinicians are doing the work that veteran clinicians used to do 10 years ago. So they're in therapy sessions one-on-one -on -one after one or two years graduate school, and they are still not seasoned and experienced yet, yet they have this huge responsibility to apply CBT, DBT, and know which one to pull on when. And that is a very difficult position to be in. So of course, supervision, of course, trainings and ongoing continuing ed, but in the moment, what's your roadmap? And so the collaborative stage, or sorry, the growth and resiliency model is the roadmap to plug in. Um, so the first three steps of the growth and resiliency model is only internal work. So it's teaching people one, self-awareness is this first step it's called become aware. Two, mm -hmm. observe objectively. So you're observing what you are now aware of. So non-judgmental mm -hmm. and mindful. And then once you've observed it, more of the objective view, not the subjective view, you can then respond to yourself. You can self-talk, you can make a game plan, you can self-soothe, you can do all these things so that then you can go into the world and say, hey, this is my thought, this is what I need help on. These are my feelings, these are my urges to fix my problems. You can articulate what you need because you've done the first three steps of your internal work. So the resiliency piece is important because the first three steps is about self-reliance rather than other reliance. Self-reliance is I'm aware, I observe, and I respond. Then I can communicate that into my world. So the therapy is really the first three steps. And then step four and five are communication plans, action plans, and then the growth reflection, which is a big growth mindset step. So we spend a ton of time on the first three. And then when we have a roadmap, we can say, I think we're missing self-awareness. Let's pull back. I think we're missing a non-judgmental stance of what we're aware of. Let's pull back. So the meta model is not to compete with DBT, CBT. It's not to be the next Marshall Linehan. It's to mm -hmm. create a model to plug theory in and make mm -hmm. it very accessible to people and then what I learned from the collaborative stage model with Mary Jo Barrett, who's a big mentor of mine, is that she emphasized the value of transparency and collaboration with the client. So they understand the model, they understand what they're doing, and, and therefore it's trauma-informed because you're inviting the person to be in the room with you as an equal partner 
rather than you, the therapist, the authority figure that might kind of reenact some trauma with a power dynamic. So the model is meant to be as accessible as possible. So there's a book on Amazon. We have printed curriculum. We have the model printed on walls. We want the clients to know what's going on and that it's not magic, that they're doing a lot of the work. So it is a place to plug in all of those evidence-based theories that you're working and you're learning about in school. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, in, in social work, they train us in this strengths-based model and this idea for clients to have a lot of volition and choice. And so often when clients come to me or students that I have, and they'll say, ah, oh, therapy just really wasn't my thing. I didn't really get anything out of it. And I may ask them, well, what were you expecting to get? And I think so many people go in and they just expect the therapist to kind of take the wheel and to drive. And I, I was imagining as you were first describing it, I was thinking, wow, they must have to lay this out to the client and say, this is what we're going to do. Does that start? I mean, I'm guessing first at an intake, there's just getting some background, but how is it in the first session or toward the end of the first session that we're just kind of laying out, hey, this is the path of how we're going to, like, these are the symptoms you came in to get help with. And here's how this process is going to work to help you deal with that. Yeah, absolutely. So you can use it however you want as a clinician and however your client wants to take it. So mm -hmm. in our waiting room, the model is printed on a big board and it's in the waiting room. So there's this gentle awareness of it. It's also on our website and a big conversation, typically for people calling saying, hey, I'm calling. I really liked the idea of the guard model on the website. Is there a therapist who does that at your practice? Mm -hmm. So 50% of the time they have a sense of it. So they're open to it. The other 50%, instead of teaching the whole model right off the bat, we just say, we're going to work on self-awareness and self-awareness is the big four. The big four is thoughts, emotions, physical sensations, and urges. No secret, it's borrowed from CBT. It's borrowed from mm -hmm. DBT. We're not trying to hide that at all, but we like to package it. And I think there's so much value in packaging therapy in a way that is easy to digest. So self-awareness. Um, becoming aware of yourself, becoming aware of your big four, so that in six weeks, when I ask you what your big four is, when you're talking to me about something that's recently been triggering to you, you tap into that quickly, we go through it, and then you can integrate that into your world and do your own big fours and making it these key terms, these quick catches that then um, the client is aware of. Hopefully the therapist is talking to the parent in that terminology so the parent is aware of it. And then, as you know, we teach it in school districts. So now teachers are aware of it and parents are aware of it, whether they're in therapy or not. So community wise, I love the influence of a language mm -hmm. to help adolescents and help kids and adults have some relationship with one another and not talk about some things that are more complicated, like dear man. Mm -hmm. um, no one's going to really understand that unless you're in a DBT program or DBT therapist, but the big four, I think could become a kind of household phrase. And I'd love that. You know, that's, I love the work of Dr. Mark Brackett and Brene Brown interviewed him and the, this idea that so many of us, even therapists struggle to figure out what their feeling is. And so that first step of just this awareness that you're talking about in your model, like, what am I feeling? And then how am I communicating that? Because no matter who's trying to help you, and I know in your PHP and IOP programs that you've developed at Simply Be, there's a lot of a lot of the people that I'm thinking I'd be referring to that are might be people with eating issues or and or school refusal. And I can imagine how if if I'm feeling dysregulated in the morning about before going to school, having clear like that big four that I can communicate with my parents, the people around me, 
that's going to just make that process so much easier because so much frustration for the people in our lives, when for a person with a mental health disorder, if the people who are surrounding them don't get it, and most of the time, if they haven't experienced those same things, they're not going to get it exactly. It's so hard to communicate. What do I need right now when I'm dysregulated? So I think that that would be a huge aspect. So now how about with older clients, people who are adults, how do you approach that idea of communicating with the people around them and their team um, to, so that they have that common language? Yeah, it is just, you know, I have a thought that I can't go to work today because I'm very anxious about my meeting with my boss. I have an emotion of fear. I have an urge to sleep in. I have an urge to um, get go to work late. Um, I'm going to do all these avoidance behaviors. I have the physical sensation of an upset stomach. So there's the things that you can do to make sure that you're using the big four in your language and the person doesn't need to know it's called the big four. I like labeling mm -hmm. the thing before you say it because then it creates objectivity because I have a thought that I can't go to work is very different than I can't go to work. Mm -hmm. So then step two comes in pretty quickly. I have a thought that is serving. It's, it's perhaps seen, but it's not all of you. And that borrows from many other theories. And it just says, okay, great. You have an emotion. You're aware of that. Observe it by saying, I have a thought that. And then respond to that thought. Challenge it. Accept it. Reframe it. That's the respond. That's step three. And then say that out to the world. Say that to someone in your life. Because they can't help you unless they know what's going on. And that's kind of my beef a little bit is that we put the cart in front of the horse and we give people skills of communication before they even know self-awareness. And it mm -hmm. has driven me kind of crazy when we get this evidence-based ABC soup and mm -hmm. it's very muddy and confusing for people to know which one to pull on. So if we, if we just prioritize self-awareness and add skills in there, then the other stuff I think comes very natural. So step one is probably 75% of our work at Simply B and then two through five just take off. Yeah, and I find that so many of my clients, they're skipping steps where they will, they'll say, I feel like injuring, I feel like purging, I feel like, and again, that it seems like this is really helping them to slow down and to identify, no, that's not even a feeling, like you're feeling something else there. Let's, let's look at our different options and try to slow down and give that, that opportunity to make a different choice based on what we're really feeling and what we really need. Is that kind yeah, of the, the book idea? has... Yeah, the, so the book has very clear education of what is a thought, what is emotion, physical sensation, and urge. And then there's a journal worksheet that follows that step that just has people bullet journal so that they can start to organize what is a thought, what is an emotion, what is a physical sensation versus an urge, because urges and physical sensations are more important the knowing emotions and thoughts, because emotions and thoughts are actually the labels in which we apply our urges and our physical sensations. And it's so inaccurate and biased. We know that. So if we can tap into physical sensations and urges more priority than even thoughts and emotions, we are going to get more information faster because we know that our anxiety is physical and then we cognitively label it. The faster we connect to that physical response, the less we're going to engage in all of the avoidance because we've wasted time. 
So I really like organizing the four for people and then emphasizing the value, the importance of urge and physical sensations in therapy, because that's new information. Thoughts and emotions aren't new information for most therapists, for most clients, but physical sensations and urges is very new and very, very important. And a big part of being both physically aware of yourself and mentally aware of yourself is a big emphasis because if we aren't really doing that, we know that modern psychology is saying how important body awareness is. And I just want to mm -hmm. speed that up for people. So if a person picks up the book, it sounds like it's written to be a little used for clinicians, for parents, but primarily for clients themselves who are wanting to make this change. Mm -hmm. Is there an age at which you would say, okay, but younger than 13, it might be, they might not have the developmental tools to be able to use this or like, because I, I'm, we're seeing more, you know, coming into mental health programs. And again, the one benefit of the pandemic is people became more aware that mental health is something that's affecting everybody. Um, but are you saying like, do you find that I, I personally don't work with kids under a certain age because the kind of therapy that I do, it's very, you know, you really need to be able to process your thoughts a lot. So do you feel like there, at what age would you feel like people could start to utilize this uh, modality? I think if a person was going to pick up the book and read it, the mm -hmm. age would be about 14 um, mm -hmm. because the stories I have in there are stories that apply the theory. But if you skipped straight to the skills and you skipped straight to the education part, because there's story, there's education and there's skills. Mm -hmm. So I would say that most people could pick up the book and co-read it. So in therapy, if you have a 10 year old, you could go to this, the page, what is a thought? And you could read a paragraph mm -hmm. from the book, hand it to the 10 year old, have them read the paragraph. And then you take the book back and then you read the paragraph. So you could co-read the book and therapy, and then you could take the journal page and do that with the client. You could photocopy it, or you could put it on the whiteboard. So the therapist would then need to use it, but then it could go down to 10 if there was some assistance. Mm -hmm. When you're getting referrals from people, say for, it sounds like this also helps to instead of just being a focus on the behavior. So let's say someone comes to you and they've got an eating disorder issue, it, or if they have self injury or if they have substance abuse, or they have all of them at the same time, this we're, we're again, we're saying that these are behaviors that are secondary to the root cause of kind of, how are we handling our emotions and feelings? So is that kind of how you're like, when is it saying, okay, I'm not trying to prioritize what I, which behavior I'm addressing first, I'm addressing those feelings and urges overall, and then just seeing what comes of that. Is that kind of the approach? Yeah, I mean, if if you were to ask me how I would prioritize something, especially in the higher levels of care, we would use DBT's basic principle, which is therapy interfering behavior. So life, so life threatening first. Mm -hmm. So if they're suicidal, if they're homicidal, then that's first. Second is therapeutically interfering behaviors. So if they're not coming, then I can't teach them about urges <laughs> or physical sensations. So we we use DBT's prioritizing. Um, once they're in the door, let's say they're in the door and they're coming to us, then what I would do is I would prioritize physical sensations and urges because then the actual expression of that could be eating disorder, self-injury, school refusal, or substance abuse. Mm -hmm. So the expression is, is important, but if they could catch the urge before the expression, we could prevent the behavior. 
So I like to peel it back and get them very aware of their urge and then introduce this idea of observing the urge in step two rather than going to the urge because they've skipped step two. So I just talked mm -hmm. to them, hey, where was step two in this? It looks like we went to step three, which is respond or react. Could we have gone to step two? What's in step two? Let's go to the curriculum. Let's go to the book. What skill could you used in two? Then you you are plugging in the roadmap for them and it's not just shooting in the dark of a skill. Um, mm -hmm. because I've been a, I've been treat I've been in higher levels of care all of my career. And the amount of parents and kids who have said, I know all the skills, but I don't use them or they don't use them. And I think it's because they don't know how to pull on which lever when. And they need a therapist constantly there to tell them which one to pull and when in program. But this is a, this is a process in which they can say, all right, I need to observe, which means step back. I need to respond to my observations. Oh, I'm reacting there. How do I shift to a responder? And it's just, it's the same phrase over and over. So if you're with us for four to six weeks, you're going to get the message pretty clearly. There's, there's key terms. You've heard them probably 10 times already just now. It's mm -hmm. really supposed to be as simple as possible, as simple as possible for people to go and use. And so when we talk about that higher level of care, how is, you know, when you're a clinician, how are you deciding whether that person, okay, I've been working with this person individually for a while and it just, they, they again, we're, we're having these interfering things. Like, how do you decide when to refer someone to a higher level of care? That's a great question. So to refer to a higher level of care, I have this metaphor. And again, I hope everyone can understand this friend to friend, parent to parent, therapist to parent. It is an example of you have two trains driving, riding side by side. And if the symptom train is going faster than the treatment train and the treatment train is outpatient. If the symptoms are increasing and the train is faster, you need to speed up the treatment train. So it needs to be an assessment for IOP or PHP or inpatient so that that treatment train can speed up to the symptoms, catch the symptoms, pull the symptoms back, and then reduce the treatment with the symptom reduction. That's a cue that you need more support. And especially with eating disorders, substance abuse, and self-injury, the longer you're in the symptom, the more chronic it becomes and the more deadly it becomes. So we do not want to give them four weeks or six weeks to reduce symptoms. We want to give them one week, two weeks. And the biggest fail, I think, is that people do not know what IOP PHP is. They don't understand the resource. They don't know what it means. I've talked to people that you would expect would know IOP PHP, maybe a pediatrician or an IEP speech pathologist. These people do not know what IOP PHP is. And I think it causes people to not access the resource fast enough. And then the chronicness of mental health really um, persists. Well, I was even talking to a, a, my best friend is an ER doctor, and he was listening to one of the episodes where I talked about PHPs and IOPs. And he said, yeah, now what's the difference again between IOP and PHP? So do you want to, can you lay out for us what, and especially at Simply Be, what's, what's the difference between your IOP and your PHP? Do you mind sharing that? Yeah, so this is across the board standard level of care for insurance purposes, payer purposes. It is IOP three to five times a week, three hours a day. It includes individual therapy, family therapy, group therapy, maybe dietitian services, maybe ancillary services, but that's kind of the meat of it. Partial hospital program is a minimum of five days, five hours a day, five days a week, up to seven days a week, 
can go up to 12 hours a day. It's called a PHP plus, and that would include much more. So to fill that schedule would be psychiatry, dietitian, group, individual, family, movement, exposures, exercise, meal prep, life skills. It could be many, many things. And each length of stay is about four to six weeks. So you could have someone come into PHP for four weeks, step down to IOP for four weeks, and then be with us for a duration of eight, and then plus or minus a few weeks in each one of those levels of care. And it requires pre-authorization with insurance. So it is a very expensive service, and it requires a lot of the family in terms of commitment and time, and also working with insurance to advocate to maintain those services and allowing your team to call on your behalf and advocate for more. It's much more robust outpatient. Fortunately, there's no limit on sessions. You can access a therapist, no authorization, very low barrier for entry. IOP PHP is a significant um, operation that um, I think most families are shocked their first week or two, just how much goes into it. But after a week or two, you can really settle in and get the lay of the land. But it's like a lot of medical treatments at that level. You don't quite understand the landscape of it until you're in it. And, you know, it's it, sometimes it's for me, it's a hard sell to get people to say, they'll say, well, I can't take four weeks out of school. I can't take four weeks out of work or whatnot. But the problem is, you know, if we've spent 15 years or 37 years walking into the woods, we're not going to walk out of it effectively in an hour a week. Sometimes we need some more intense you know, time really spending on developing those skills so that we can apply them outside of there. So if we, you know, nobody has time for physical therapy, but if you blow your knee out, you may have to make that time. Are there any other ways you pitch it to families to help them understand why it makes sense to prioritize this um, to, go to do the PHP and IOP? Yeah, so what I've like a lot is borrowing from ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is using your values to make decisions. So I have them write their goals down for themselves for the next three months, nine months, 12 months, maybe five years if they're looking ahead. And then I have them write down their values of who they are, who their family is, where they, who they want to be, what they already have, what their morals are. And then I ask them to look at both of those. And then I say, will your current state of being give you those goals, help live values. And then the motivational interviewing is what would it look like for you to take a pause from school, invest in your self-care and your mental health so that you can get back on track for these goals. So I use ACT and then I use motivational interviewing and then I am very direct. I will tell someone at this rate, you are not going to be successful in college. You will not have the nutrition for your brain to function at a college level. You will not have the energy to walk to and from school and you will struggle with sleep. And we know sleep is very important in college. You are, you are not going to be as successful or even be able to attend in college. And that is something that we have discussed. Your doctor has told you. So then I'm very direct and honest with them about where they're headed. And if I have the relationship with them, there's this kind of coming to reality that starts to happen. And it doesn't happen overnight, but if it does move things a little faster, the faster to treatment, the better. And so I'm not shy about that. 
when you have a, you talked about this two symptom trains going and one, the symptom, I should say the symptom train going faster than the treatment train. What if you have a client who is, they're just basically maintaining the same pace, but it's just becoming this, as you've said, some of these behaviors, whether they're eating sitters, self-harm, substance abuse, if they are like knowing that if they're keeping at the same place, it's doing damage. Is there a point at which I know there's one clinician that I work with who she will sometimes say, ethically, I can't treat you anymore unless you seek a higher level of care. For you, what's that point? If, if they're not in immediate risk of harm, it's not a safety thing, but how do you, like, is there a point for you where you would say, or do you want to leave it, you know, client-based, leave it to be their decision of saying where, hey, I'm, I'm laying this out for you. Ultimately, it's your choice, but I don't, I don't think you're going to make progress on this. What point would you say, hey, ethically, I can't treat you anymore unless you're willing to raise your level of care? Yeah, of course. Ethically, if they are causing more harm to themselves, then I will put that line in the sand. If they're not causing harm to themselves, so they're medically stable, they're mentally stable, there's no body damage happening. So body damage could be muscle, fluid, fat, tissue, any of those things, suicide, suicidality. If none of that's going on and they're stuck in pre-contemplation, then we continue to work with them where they're at and we review the treatment plan more frequently. So if a clinician's listening to this and they're stuck with someone, what we do at Simply Be is we go back to the treatment plan consistently and say, these are your goals. This is your progress. Do you want to change your goals? Do you want to keep these goals? And do you want to maintain the progress that you're on with them? So that we kind of bring the horse to the trough and we say, this is your treatment plan. This is your goal we are making very little progress on your goals. Are you aware of that? How do you feel about that? What are your thoughts about that? What urges do you have when you see this treatment plan? What physical sensations do you have when you see this treatment plan? And what is that What is that for you? So motivational interviewing. So we go back to GAR model, we go back to the treatment plan. And if they wanna keep their goals and they wanna keep working in pre-contemplation, then we work with them. Um, that ethical, approach I only use for medical or physical harm because I don't mm -hmm. want to coerce a client mm -hmm. into something and coercion and eating disorders is a huge conversation because it is the most deadly disease and there is a point in time where you need to step in and be very firm but people have agency and autonomy and it's not our responsibility to step in and take that from them so it's a fine line. And I think we have to be very thoughtful and mindful of that because the power dynamic is something to always be mindful of when you are treating one of the most severe, one of the most severe mental health conditions. With your banality, is there much homework outside of sessions or is it just encouraged for people to maybe like do some journaling, check in with their feelings and bring that back into session? You know, is there an expectation of people doing kind of their own work outside of the session? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would definitely for my clients, give them the worksheets and give them the information and encourage them to do it. If they're not doing it, then we can either if it's if they're in the program, we'll behavior chain it. So we'll go into, you know, what are the antecedents for not doing the homework? What is the avoidance not doing the homework? What's the consequences of not doing your homework? So in the program, of course, we all have very um, firm and clear goals that we all need to be in line with. If they're an outpatient, we let them make those decisions, how they use their time outside of outpatient, because outpatient, we assume 
that they have full autonomy and agency to make all of the decisions that they want to, and that's their right. In IOP PHP, it is very different because the seriousness of it is very different. And if you don't succeed in IOP, you go to PHP. If you don't succeed in PHP, you go to residential or inpatient. So the consequences to not doing any work on the outside are really significant. So there's more pressure to do work outside of program hours. Are there any misconceptions about mental health treatment generally, about IOP, about PHP, about anything that you like just frustrates you and that you want to kind of like share with our audience that where you're just like, oh, I just, I wish people could view this with a different lens. Absolutely. So the biggest one is the concern of parents about the contagion of behavior. So is my child going to be in a room with a, with a bunch of kids who um, have scars on their arms, or are they all going to be talking about drugs and alcohol? And it's almost like all the other kids are bad, but their kid is good. And that really causes me to have a reaction because we're all here for a reason. And so to be so judgmental out of fear, I understand, is something that does kind of get at me. And I wish we could change this idea that group therapy is high risk or unhealthy for teenagers. Because if you see the group and you see the kids, you know that they are very caring of one another. They are respectful of one another. And um, with good professionals, easy to manage and easy to redirect. But you do you do need to vet the program. You should do the assessment and kind of interview the program as much as they're assessing the client and make sure that it's somewhere where you get answers that you are comfortable with and that there is a level of explanation and transparency that makes sense. Sometimes parents feel like they're informed with something that doesn't make sense. And until it does, you need to ask all those questions because if your gut is tuning into something, Ask all the questions until you get clarity. No, to, to your point, the, people find people at their same level of emotional health. So they're going to find people in this program that are also working on things. But the kids that they're finding normally right now outside the program, all of their friends are also dealing with these issues. You as a parent are just not aware of it. So it's just what, when we when they try to say, well, why can't they hang out with healthier people? And it's like, well, people are going to find people who they feel understand them, who are not going to judge them. And often that means finding people who have had some rough life experiences, have some emotional wounds. And to know Know, again, as I say, at least these people are working on their wounds. <laughs> it should be a relief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, the phrase that I've heard before is like fringe. Like it's the people. It's like the people who have had um, kind of rougher, rougher moments or rougher times, but they're they're able to kind of have the grit and have the relationships. And they may not be cookie cutter people, but sometimes that is the group of people who can hold the emotional space. And we try not to judge groups and judge people. We just want to make sure that everyone's making healthy, safe decisions, but not the, we don't, the way that they look and, and what has happened to them in their past should not be an indicator of, of if they're good enough to, to be friends with, with your child. It's so much more than that. Well, if people want to find out more about you, about Simply Be, about the book, about, you know, where should people start to look to find out more about the, you know, the growth and resiliency model? So where, where would you direct people? I would say socials. So we are very active on Pinterest and our blogs are very helpful because each blog has resources hyperlinked to them. And then we can send a weekly email with different materials and resources. 
So Pinterest, I would highly recommend Instagram and LinkedIn, Facebook as well. You can just search Simply Be Counseling and you'll find us on any of those platforms. And then the book, Growing a Resilient Mind, Five Ways to Grow a Resilient Mind is searchable on Amazon and linked on our website, simplybecounseling.net. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So if anybody is listening to this or watching us on YouTube, they'll be able to see that there. So any other final thoughts you want to share with uh, our listeners before we uh, sign off today? No, just a plug for Pause for Patrick. It has been very valuable to have you in the community. And I think that the idea behind it is so powerful because we know animals are so sweet and gentle and can really reduce the emotional experience of people. So um, big plug for Pause for Patrick and just appreciate the the value that it brings to the community. So I hope that all of the people listening continue to follow and support you guys. Well, thank you so much for saying that. And, you know, we hope that everyone who's listening, you know, you realize that there are so many different ways to approach getting better, getting healthier. That if you are a person with a family member or someone that you care about, to not give up and to try different things that are gonna work for you. And so on behalf of Mariska, on behalf of Audrey, we just say, do whatever it takes to get you through this world. And remember, you are not allowed to die.